what's going on, nerds? Um, I am back with another really cool episode of the Veterinary Anesthesia Nerd Podcast. And today we are talking with Dr. Chris Norkus. Uh, you guys may remember that Dr. Norkus was on talking about how to treat the urethral obstruction cats recently on the podcast. Well, guess what? He's back again and he's going to tell us, you know, how to treat some more of these critical anesthesia patients. For those of you guys who didn't listen to that podcast, make sure to check it out. But just to give you a recap, Dr. Chris Norcus is not only a certified veterinary technician, that's right, he started out as a vet tech, which means he really knows his shit. He started out as a veterinary technician, then decided that wasn't good enough, so went on for his VTS and ECC, then decided he needed more letters after his name, so he became a VTS in anesthesia. And then he decided that he really needed to get himself further in debt, and he went to vet school. After he graduated from vet school, he decided this isn't even good enough, and he became a specialist in anesthesia and anesthesiology. Then that even wasn't good enough, so he became a specialist in emergency and critical care. And for the very last piece de resistance, he decided I needed more, more letters after my name, and he became a CVPP, or Certified Veterinary Pain Practitioner. I really, really hope, Chris, that you are finished and you can just be happy with the 38 letters you now have. I am always looking for the next fun thing to do. <laughs> you can become a cannabis counselor. Ooh. I don't know what, I don't know. You know, it's really hard. I think if I were to do something next, I think you'd be acupuncture. Um, oh, I've really I wanted to do that for a long time. Yeah. That would be yeah, cool. That, that might be my next thing. But uh, I've got lots of fun publishing projects and um, kind of, you know, doing more lecturing these days. Uh, so I've also been focusing my attention there too. So. So for those of you, for those who have not listened to the the previous podcast that we did together, um, just get everybody up to speed on kind of where you work and, and what, yeah. what, what you do. What do I, what do I do? Yeah, great. So, so I am in private practice. Um, I uh, currently work at uh, VCA Veterinary Specialists of Connecticut in West Hartford, Connecticut. Um, I am, I have, I have multiple roles there. Um, I am staff anesthesiologist. Um, I am on our critical care staff as a criticalist, and I also am our chief of staff. So I'm actually head of the hospital and I'm involved with leadership and management. So um, it keeps me really, really busy. Um, unfortunately, I have a really awesome team that I work with. So I get lots of lots of great help and support from them. So it's a great, great place to work. That's awesome. I mean, we are all looking for that kind of environment to, to yeah. work in and be a part of and kind of, you know, collaborate and learn from the best but I'm sure that now, and especially, I mean, maybe even especially now with veterinary hospitals functioning the way they are, and I don't know about you, but our hospital has just seen so many more emergency cases. Uh, we have been so busy with the COVID-19 coronavirus. It, it's just been, it's been unbelievable. Um, you know, most of what I've been doing has shifted more to emergency critical care, and we have just been exceptionally busy. Yeah. Yeah, our emergency department has been slammed uh, ever since this thing kind of started up. Uh, and that's kind of what I wanted to talk to you about, uh, kind of more the emergency anesthesia patient. Um, right. And today, what I was hoping that we could talk about is an emergency patient that, again, emergency clinics see this patient, regular GPs will see this patient, um, big city, rural areas. So I'm talking about the patient that comes in and needs a C-section. So how do you feel about going through a case yeah. with us? It sounds great. I, I, I love talking about C-section anesthesia. It's something that I've 
lectured at it during uh, my training as a veterinary uh, anesthesia resident and something I've done a bunch of publishing on, so uh, lecturing on. So it's, it's a, a topic that's near and dear to my heart. One of my favorite topics. Okay, great. Excellent. Here's your case. Okay. So let's, let's say in the hospital, we have a six-year-old female pit bull. Okay. She's been seen. She's I already. Love Sounds yeah. good. We're off to a good start. Uh, <laughs> she's had maybe some fluid. She's had her oxytocin. Nothing's happening. Fetal heart rate's dropping. Maybe we got three pups in there. There's no puppies in that birth canal. And we need to go to surgery. We need to have a C section. Uh, right. Walk us through kind of what are some things we should be looking out for? What are some drug choices we could be making? What's going to be the best for this patient? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think the first step is obviously deciding that this patient is a, a surgical emergency. And it certainly sounds like it is. It sounds like, you know, we, we're not going to be able to treat this patient medically. Fetal heart rates are dropping. Um, we do need to take this this dog to the OR. And, you know, despite the fact that there is certainly um, a need to do that, I think we have to take a step back and make sure we're dotting our I's and crossing our T's, making sure we're doing good physical exams or placing our IV catheter. We're running some baseline diagnostics, things like CBC, blood chemistry, electrolytes. We've probably looked at this dog's belly with focused ultrasound. Maybe we've taken some abdominal radiographs. Um, maybe we've taken a blood pressure, you know, and, and we've made every effort possible to get this dog as stable as possible. So, you know, we've given it some, some volume with typically IV crystalloids, um, replaced any dehydration or as, as close to, you know, fully replacing dehydration as possible. Maybe we've checked, uh, you know, electrolytes and we've ch corrected electrolyte imbalance. If the dog's hypoglycemic, maybe we've supplemented some dextrose. Um, so we've gotten this dog as stable as possible. And, you know, I think the, the next thing, you know, that we really want to be thinking about is being as prepared to move forward as possible. So that really entails being as set up as possible, making sure that, you know, you, your, your OR is set up, that your surgeon is ready to go. They are scrubbed in. A lot of people will often, to cut down on time, they'll often, you know, clip the, the patient's belly. They might even do a, a quick surgical prep with the patient awake. So that once you induce that patient, you can keep moving forward very quickly. And, and I, I can't really stress you know, the point of being prepared, making sure that, you know, are you set up for puppy resuscitation afterwards in puppy care? Part of being a good anesthesiologist or anesthetist is being prepared and always thinking about the worst case scenario and being prepared for that. Um, that will really help maximize good outcomes. So that's kind of the first step. I think after that, you know, I'm usually going to, you know, start with uh, giving this patient some opioid. Um, I think years ago we didn't do that as often. If you look, you know, if anyone's ever had a child, you know, certainly they don't withhold opioids, you know, in in people. Um, you know, no, they certainly. Don't. No, they. Yeah, I can, you know. I can speak <laughs> for this. Right. So there, there used to be this mantra that we would never give patients opioids. You know, in general, you know, opioids are not super respiratory depressant in dogs and cats. We do have reversal agents. You know, I think if you read a lot of the old textbooks, they really stress how, you know, we really want to avoid respiratory depression in puppies and kittens. And that's true. But opioids are not generally profoundly respiratory depressant in dogs or cats. They're, you know, they are in people, but dogs and cats aren't human. So, um, so I'll often start with an opioid, you know, a, a drug I might give might be some fentanyl or some methadone, morphine, hydromorphone, something like that is usually what I'm going to start with. 
And, and just to kind of calm the dog a little, I'm, I'm usually going to avoid drugs like acepromazine or dexmedetomidine or benzodiazepines. Um, those are drugs that have been shown in, a, in some, some literature in the veterinary world to, to be associated with essentially, you know, less active puppies and less positive outcome for puppies, depending on the, on the drug and the study that we're talking about. So we usually skip those drugs. So an opioid usually is, is an adequate premedication. I might consider other drugs like antiemetics. So serenia might be an option, um, you know, which is meropidant. Yeah, I use that in pretty much almost every anesthetic case that I do these days. You know, patients who are pregnant are going to have a higher potential higher risk for regurgitation. So, you know, I'm going to want to induce them fairly quickly. So, um, you know, some things for induction that I might be looking for might be a Maybe a choice of like alfaxlone or propofol. Those are probably the most common induction uh, agents that I'm going to use. Um, I, I'm generally not going to be giving ketamine. Um, that's that's also been associated with less than desirable outcomes on puppies and kittens. You know, I, I generally am not going to be doing a mask induction. I think we used to do that a lot 20 or 30 years ago. There's there's uh, a lot of reasons why we don't do that. We could do a whole podcast on, on just mask and chamber inductions, but that's not something we really do very much anymore. And, and so, you know, after I induce that dog or cat with propofol or alfaxalone, and I'm really going to want to kind of keep their head up. I'll, I'll usually have pre-oxygenated them for probably about five minutes with a tight-fitting face mask before I induce them. And I'm going to want to then secure their airway really quickly, um, just in case that patient does regurgitate, that I have a, a protected airway. And, you know, once I do that, I'm going to be putting them on an, uh, generally an inhalant um, with usually oxygen um, or air oxygen mixture. And so, you know, to me, if I have the choice, usually the, the inhalant of choice that I'm usually going to be reaching for is either sevoflurane or desflurane. Um, and if I don't have that, usually uh, isoflurane then will be will be a, an adequate, you know, substitute yeah, um, yeah. alternatively. You, you, you know, <laughs> no one listening to this podcast has desflurane not, at their not, practice. Desflurane is pretty cool. We could do a whole podcast on just like cool anesthesia really things. Cool. <laughs> we could talk about desflurane and xenon anesthesia and all sorts of cool stuff. Okay, um, but, we but lost Des, half the audience. Desflurane is pretty cool, but but let's back up for a minute. So, so you know, isoflurane for most people is going to be what they're going to be using, and that, that's perfectly fine. Um, some people will do total intravenous anesthesia with propofol. That's not wrong either. I think it's more complicated than is needed um, for your average C-section. And so, you know, certainly providing this patient with fluid therapy and designated anesthetist, we're going to be monitoring pulse ox, electrocardiogram, blood pressure, capnography, temperature um, at a minimum. You know, those are really the things that are pretty standard in this day and age for, for really every patient. And, uh, you know, once I have that patient anesthetized, I, I often personally will do a quick epidural. Um, it's not something that's mandatory. I, I often will do a quick epidural with, with preservative-free morphine and, and maybe some lidocaine. Um, you certainly don't have to do that, but it's a nice thing to add in for peri- and post-op analgesia. And I think, you know, some of the things we want to be paying attention to under general anesthesia is how well that patient's ventilating. Um, we want to make sure the patient's appropriately anesthetized. We want to really be exquisitely uh, focused on uh, mom's blood pressure. Um, we really want to maximize uterine blood flow and make sure that the neonates or soon-to-be neonates uh, are, are getting good blood flow and oxygenation. So I'm pretty proactive with these cases that if mom is hypotensive, 
um, you know, certainly further volume uh, therapy might be beneficial. So maybe a crystalloid bolus, maybe titrating inhalant, but I'm pretty quick to reach for a drug like ephedrine uh, or potentially uh, phenylephrine, um, usually are the two drugs that are most commonly described in the human literature. You know, that's it. You can certainly do, you know, a, a line block. Uh, you can use Noceta, lots of options there. But those are kind of the drugs that I'm usually going to reach for, you know, in my cesarean section. You could alternatively use Atomidate if you had a really sick patient. But drugs I'm generally staying away for are going to be your benzodiazepines, uh, your ketamine, your dexmedetomidine, your acepromazine, and avoiding things like chamber mask induction. Okay. So here's another, like, you know, controversial topic, or at least yeah. it seems to be with these C-section patients, mm-hmm. is can they get a dose of an NSAID postoperatively? Probably, yeah. So, you know, for how I typically will manage my post-op pain control in this patient, you know, they usually had gotten an opioid pre-op. I'll usually give mom uh, a, a post-op dose of, a, of an NSAID. I usually don't continue that. Um, and the main concern of that is for uh, changes to renal development in the newborn, um, if, it, if it were to expose them. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly, you can continue with some degree of opioids afterwards. Um, generally, it, it does not usually cause significant depression of puppies or respiratory depression uh, in them. I mean, I think that's what we're all concerned about, but clinically, that doesn't really happen very much. If it did, you could give some sublingual naloxone to the puppies, but I think practically speaking, it doesn't really happen. So, you know, uh, some continuation of post-op opioids, I'll often use buprenorphine, um, simple, typically we'll give it a post-op dose of an NSAID. Um, a lot of times for mom, depending on the size, what I might be then sending home with might be um, uh, some oral transmucosal buprenorphine if the dog is really little. And bigger dogs, I might reach for an opioid like codeine or hydrocodone plus acetaminophen might be an option. I'm going to be doing cold compressing over the surgical site. Um, I might put a, a transdermal lidocaine patch over the incision as well. I might do some noceta into the incision. Um, but certainly if you're using something like an epidural with morphine and a local anesthetic, that's really helpful because then, you know, the, the morphine in that is going to probably give you somewhere between maybe up to 18 to 24 hours of pain control. Um, so that's really nice. So, yes, I do use opioids. Um, I do use NSAIDs. But if I'm going to use the NSAIDs, um, I'm just careful not to go too long with them. Okay. But you're, you're, so just to make sure that I am hearing you correctly, it's like a, yeah. doing like a one-time, like a dose of an right. NSAID afterwards. Correct. So I might okay. give, I might give mom, you know, a, a single dose of meloxicam. I'm not going to typically send mom home with a five-day or seven-day course of meloxicam, but, but I feel pretty comfortable with giving one dose. And I think, you know, if you go back, uh, you know, to, to the literature in, in the Journal of Veterinary Emergency Critical Care, Carol Matthews, Dr. Matthews, who was from Ontario's vet school uh, about 10 plus years ago, did a whole uh, manuscript on, you know, managing these cases and, and post-op pain control. And that was kind of the conclusion from her work. Uh, that a single instead was was usually appropriate. And, and I think as long as the patient is normotensive, normovolemic, not dehydrated, um, you know, has normal renal function, you know, that, I think that's a, a usually a pretty safe thing to do, a, a single, you know, a single dose. Yeah. Well, I feel like 
we're doing a pretty good job where I work, so I feel pretty good about this. Awesome. Um, yeah. I'm definitely going to have some of my docs listen to this to maybe get them on board with some other things, because uh, you know I love my local blocks. Like, and just speaking from someone who actually had a C-section, I mean, my God. Do you God, know what like, you got then? Did you know any of the, the, the drugs you received? So I'm sure I, you asked. I know you. I, I'm sure oh, you asked. I did ask. I mean, listen, I had legit printed out, like, okay, so you know the people that come in and they're like, oh, my Frenchie can't have any drugs. And I printed right. out all these papers. Why? From the random internet. And so I became that, that person. person. Yeah. I was yeah. like, so I don't know if you know this, but there was a 2011 New England Journal of Medicine that looked at dexmedetomidine <laughs> infusions. And and the guy was like, no. <laughs> so what did they do? Do you recall what they did? I'm, I'm really interested to hear. Yeah, I got, I mean, you know, like a little bit of lidocaine and I got a spinal um, I mean, we should point out, I mean, one of the really important things for the, the, the listeners to realize is that in humans, the majority of cases you are not getting um, full general anesthesia for, you know, that's correct. one of the big differences. And so, you know, we don't have the same ability to do everything with under a spinal or epidural, um, you know, we, so, so it is very different how we do cesarean section anesthesia in dogs and cats is very different than in people. So yes. we try to extrapolate as much as we can. So, yeah. So and, I, and how was, I mean, I will tell you highly recommend the C-section, the other people <laughs> go in the other way. I don't know. I, 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 I had a good time, the drugs. And they gave um, you opioids, right? I mean, that, you know, yeah. I had hydro. Did you? Um, yeah. Yes, I, had I mean, fentanyl is very common, but yeah, absolutely. So I had hydro and then they gave me a little lidocaine under the skin to get ready for like the big spinal needle. And mm -hmm. that was the worst part. The that lidocaine. That was the worst part, that lidocaine. Yeah. Right. But then I, gosh, I really want to, I feel like, would it have been ropivacaine? That's what's sticking out in my mind right now. I Could don't be. know. Could but be. I feel like that's what he told me it was. And it, it lasted, just, but then after the baby was out, I got a crap load of midazolam to work with my hydro, and I was in heaven. I bet. So. And, and the hard part is that, you know, dogs and cats aren't people, right? So, you know, most right. dogs and cats don't respond the same way to benzos or my dad, you know, such as midazolam as, as humans do, you know. Okay. But, um, you know, you, you didn't, did you have your anesthesiologist put bicarbonate into the lidocaine? No. See, there we go, right? No, you know that, that trick, right? The I mixture so, of, you know, yeah, nine, so nine parts lidocaine and one part sodium bicarbonate. Yeah, used to sting. Yeah. I yeah, should have I mean, taken that's, that, and then he would have been like, get this bitch out of here. <laughs> that's like the oldest emergency trick in the book, right? You know, don't, you know, if you're giving lidocaine to an awake patient, you know, you're going to do, you know, 0 0.9 mils of 2% of lidocaine and 0.1 mils of sodium bicarbonate. It's going to turn kind of cloudy and look kind of weird, but it's going to buffer it and it's going to make it sting less. And so that's a great tip if you're ever in the emergency room as a person or you're ever giving lidocaine to an awake dog or cat. Yeah, yeah. I should have done that because they, no, they did not do that. It definitely, I felt it a lot. It stings. It's it's yeah, terrible. It stings. So many people um, say that's the worst part. It was the worst part. Yes. Because yeah. again, once I had my opioid and then I had, I mean, I was like, okay, great. Do whatever. Fine. And then, I mean, I would have killed for some serenia though. Like legit. I would have killed. For they didn't give you anything for nausea and vomiting? Yeah. They gave me some caraphate. 
Wow. Mm. Which yeah. shouldn't isn't generally going to be an anti-nausea medication. I'm, no. you know, I mean, that might help with if you if they were worried about you regurgitating and having some esophageal changes or esophagitis. Um, but yeah, I'm surprised they didn't give you anything for nausea. Wow. Uh, no, it took like it took like a whole 24 hours of me saying something and asking, and then they switched me. They turned me, they turned the hydro off and they switched me to oral, like Tylenol mm-hmm. codeine, and then they gave me what is it? Starts with a C. Duh! It's like escaping me. But they gave it to me. There's, I, there are a lot of words that start with C. Yeah, I, I know. You may have to narrow it down a little. A lot of drugs Ooh, that start no, with C. Oh, no, no. So do you know what they gave me that helped with my nausea? And it makes sense now, thinking about it. They gave what? me uh, Toradol. That, oh. That, that, like, it just helps a lot. But that and doesn't I, start I with C. You're talking about Ketoral? No, 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 no. Yeah, I'm talking. They gave me Toradol, but then they also gave me, yeah, what's the anti-nausea medicine? That, like, it, it does wonders for you when you're, you're like, you're hungover. You need a dose of... You know what? I'll put it in the show notes. No, I'm not I don't know. Right now, because I'm I've thinking had of like on Dancitron. I'm thinking of like prochlorperazine. Because with C, maybe it's on Compazine. Compazine. Yes. You're trying. To, are you talking about Compazine? Oh, yes. there we go. Compazine. I feel like I'm on Jeopardy here. What yeah. is Compazine? <laughs> it was Compazine, <laughs> and it was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. The the uh, the phenothiazines. So Compazine, yeah. if I'm not mistaken, I think is prochlorperazine, which is you know in the same family as acepromazine. So they basically gave you a bunch of A's. Great. They were, were like, you here, let's, on just, it? let's just shut this girl up. Yeah. <laughs> right. Great. Well, now that we've gotten completely off track, um, <laughs> still in the drug realm, um, I want to thank you, Dr. Narcus, for being on another episode of the podcast. Uh, it's always super informative, and I'm hoping I can take some information back, and our listeners can take yeah. some information back and do you know the best job possible with our C-section patients. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was super fun. I'd love to come back anytime. Okay, we certainly will do that at some point this year because, listen, I'm not going anywhere. I got a lot of time. We can, we can play Veterinary Jeopardy again. Ooh, yeah. Well, listen, <laughs> we're, we're going to have to go easy with this Xenon stuff because you're going to blow people's minds. Oh, it's so cool. It's so cool. <laughs> we could do a whole whole podcast on just, like, yeah, new, you know, cool, trippy things with veterinary anesthesia. That will be awesome. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Nurkis, and we will talk to you soon. Thanks. Bye-bye.